Amen. Please be seated. The parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds obviously have a lot in common. Both share much of the same subject matter and imagery. And so at first I wondered, is the parable of the weeds just a retelling of the parable of the sower? Maybe Jesus was teaching the same lesson two times in a row. But the more I read, the more I realized, even though these two parables do share a lot in common, the parable of the weeds was different in major ways. For instance, unlike the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds has an antagonist. An enemy is in the field and is spreading weeds among the sower's grain. Unlike the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds says the sower has servants. And maybe the biggest departure between these two parables is that the parable of the weeds, that in the parable of the weeds, the sower is talking about a day of the harvest where he gathers up the wheat and burns up the weeds. Clearly, these two parables share some commonality, so they must be connected. But the differences between the two are significant enough to show that the parable of the weeds isn't just a recounting of what's already been said. So how do we make sense of these two very similar, yet very different parables? Well, this is how I think these two parables are connected. The parable of the sower makes some shocking observations about Israel. And these observations led to some very serious questions. And I think the parable of the weeds provides an answer to those questions. And this is what I want to spend our time on today. I want us to see that the connection, I want us to see the connection between these two parables. I want to show the concerns Jesus is addressing in each. I want to understand the hearts of those who heard Jesus teach these parables. And I want us to see what, that what Jesus told them is a message for us as well. So if you haven't already, look under your seats. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> the imagery that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower wasn't just some random idea he had that day. The imagery of seed time and harvest was intentionally chosen by Jesus because the picture of seed time and harvest was an Old Testament picture of how God would redeem Israel, a picture he had used many times before. Every time God wanted to explain how he would deliver Israel from oppression, he would use an imagery, imagery like this. And if first century Israel had an abundance of anything, it was surely oppression. So when Jesus, the hoped for Messiah, begins the parable of the sower and uses all of the traditional language that is connected to Israel's liberation, the people who were listening must have been on the edge of their seats just waiting for Jesus to start talking about how God is going to rescue an oppressed Israel. But as Jesus tells the parable, it doesn't seem very victorious. Some of the seed makes it onto good soil, but a lot of the seed dies and withers, or it's stolen. Four examples of where the seed falls, and three of them, 75% of the examples lead to death. And to make matters worse, the actions of the sower are weird. They seem a little careless. Now look, granted, I'm not a farmer, but is this the way you're supposed to spread seed? Is this how you plant a field? You just walk around an unprepared field? You're just tossing seed on rocks and in thorns? Is that how you do it? On the surface, this parable poses a rather troubling question. Was the reason that much of the seed failed to grow because the sower hadn't prepared the field? Does this parable show that the sower is at fault, that the sower was being careless? Does the parable of the sower show that the sower failed to tend the land properly before planting the seeds? On the surface, 
That's at least a plausible answer. But the Old Testament provides some crucial background on this field and the action of the sower. Isaiah 5 offers this picture of how God tended and prepared the field of Israel. Isaiah said this, God plucked a vine out of the wilderness. God cleared the land for it. He built hedges and walls to protect it. And then God planted the vine of Israel and carefully tended it. God provided the vine with every single thing it needed to bear good fruit. The sower was far from absent in the field. He was far from lacking in the field. But did the attentiveness of the sower seem to make any difference? Did Israel bear good fruit because of how well the sower cared for it? No. God said the only thing that Israel seemed to produce was wild grapes. The only thing that Israel yielded was rebellion. And because of that rebellion and the wickedness of Israel, God would cut them off from the land and send them into exile. Israel was once a beautiful vine, rooted in the best possible conditions, tended by the best possible gardener. But now, Israel would be reduced to just a stump, almost dead, just barely clinging to life. But even in the midst of such severe judgment, there was still hope for Israel, it seemed. God promised that out of the stump of Israel, new growth would emerge. A shoot would grow out of the remains of Israel and would be more beautiful than anything previously seen. The image of a cut-off Israel and the promised shoot that would emerge is why Isaiah called their Messiah the shoot of Jesse. The Messiah would come out of the remains of Israel and deliver them from their oppression. And it's with this exact hope, the hope of the Messiah's arrival, that the Old Testament comes to an end. 400 years pass of the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And guys, those 400 years were not kind to Israel. During that time, Israel was conquered by at least five different empires. More often than not, the Jews were a people under foreign rule, a people subjugated after one nation or another. So as Israel waited for the Messiah to come, they waited with the sureness that when the Messiah did arrive, he would finally bring the oppression of foreign nations to an end. So you imagine Jesus arrives on the scene. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the incarnate shoot of Jesse. He then begins the parable of the sower, and he uses the traditional imagery of how God would redeem Israel. And you can just imagine the people are hanging on his every word. But the parable they hoped would illustrate Israel's victory didn't seem all that victorious. Instead, the parable of the shower sows, shows the seed of God's kingdom coming to the field, and many seem to be unready to receive it. The parable of the sower is about the arrival of the Messiah and how he spread the seed of his word, about how God came for Israel just as he promised that he would, yet Israel was unready to receive him when he came. Many in Israel were unready for what Jesus said, unwilling to hear what he was teaching because what he taught about God's kingdom didn't match what they hoped. They thought a parable about the kingdom of God would be all about power and strength, all about Israel's victory over the nations. They hoped to hear a parable that showed the enemies of Israel being held to account. And instead, Jesus told a parable about seed withering in the sun, seed stolen by birds, seed choked by thorns. Many in Israel were unready for Jesus, unresponsive to the seed of his word, 
because they felt Jesus failed to answer one of their most pressing, pressing questions. When would God judge the enemies of Israel? When would God judge the evil that swirled around his people on a daily basis? And that seems to be a very sensible question to ask. And guys, 2,000 years later, I can sense the church asking the same exact question. When you look at this world and all of its manifold corruption, if you reflect on the turmoil that's swirling around you, the question seems to naturally arise, Lord, how much longer? Lord, when will you judge this broken and sinful world? I know a personal story that exemplifies this question of God's judgment upon outright evil. A story where evil is on full display and is clearly deserving of punishment. A story where you could swear God would intervene and set things right. And he does. But the way God intervened was different from what I expected. In my undergrad work, I had a teacher named Dr. Knight. She's this very soft-spoken, intelligent, gentle, lovely lady. This woman loves Jesus as deeply as I have ever seen. And her love for him is so true and authentic that she never even hesitates to take the gospel to the exact places where Christ has called us, to some of the darkest places you can imagine. Dr. Knight, one of her pastors and several ladies from their church, would routinely go to the abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, they weren't yelling and screaming at people. Instead, they would ask those who were walking into the clinic if they would take just a moment to pray with them. And as you would expect, expect most of the women who were walking into the clinic either declined the invitation or ignored them. So oftentimes, Dr. Knight and her friends found themselves kneeling in the parking lot of the clinic and quietly praying. Now, one day it was crazy hot outside, over 110. It was so hot that day that they had to pray in like 10-minute rotations. And when your turn was up, you would retreat back to the shade where Dr. Knight's pastor had this big cooler of Gatorade. Dr. Knight said they had been there about an hour when all of a sudden a van whipped into the parking lot. The van was dark, the windows were tinted, and it stopped right by where Dr. Knight was praying. She looked up, saw the door slide open. To her utter shock, what emerged from the van was a coven of witches. Five witches to be exact. Every one of them was wearing long black robes, their nails were painted black, and around their necks they had pentagrams. But what shocked her most was what happened next. These five witches got down on their knees beside Dr. Knight and they began praying too. But their prayers were very different. They were different from those of Dr. Knight because these five witches were praying out loud to Satan. Dr. Knight heard these witches say things like, Oh Lord Satan, we pray that the blood of these babies continue to flow to your glory. May this place be guarded by your demons and may you be pleased with the sacrifices made here. Can you even imagine? Dr. Knight was horrified. She was shocked and this tender, sweet, gentle little woman started getting mad, y'all. When she heard these terrible prayers, she said, she thought this, if these witches are going to yell to Satan, I'm going to yell to Jesus. So she started praying out loud too. And it wasn't long before her friends were right beside her on that scalding pavement, every single one of them shouting to Jesus. And in this hot abortion clinic parking lot in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a straight up spiritual fist fight. The louder the witches prayed, the louder the Christians did, back and forth it went on and on and on. The 10 minute rotation they were taking at the beginning, that's gone, that's history. 
You couldn't have moved this sweet little woman from her knees with a bulldozer. Neither side was willing to budge, neither side refusing to give in. But then something happened. Dr. Knight said that in the middle of her satanic prayer, one of the witches stopped, fell over on her side, bounced her head off the pavement with her eyes closed. And in that moment, do you know what Dr. Knight said she thought? This sweet, gentle, Christ-loving lady thought to herself, all right, God, it's killing them. But then Dr. Knight said, out of the corner of her eye, she saw her pastor running towards them. And his hand was a cup of Gatorade. And he went over to the witch and he gently lifted her unconscious head and he slowly began to nurse her back from the brink of death. The other witches saw this too. They were all stunned by the pastor's actions. Why on earth would a pastor help them? They were enemies. Why on earth would a Christian ever care for their enemy? Dr. Knight said that this action by her pastor took the wind completely out of the sails of the witches, and the witches gathered up their things to leave, and as they did, Dr. Knight saw her pastor praying with the witch he brought back from the brink, and then it hit her. If these witches continued on this path of demonic evil, one day soon they would stand before the Lord Jesus himself and be held to account. They would face ultimate justice. But before that day of judgment came, there was a day in a hot parking lot in Jackson, Mississippi, where there was still a chance for repentance. On that day, there was still a chance, even for someone as wicked as a witch, to be rescued. I think the people of Israel were like Dr. Knight. The wicked and demonic rule of kings and emperors was as plain as day to them. These people delighted in sin and evil. They delighted in outright blasphemy and everyone could see it. But Israel, like Dr. Knight, failed to remember something crucial. The day of judgment was coming, yes, but it was not here yet. A day was coming where all of the wrongs would be set right and evil would be uncovered and judged, yes. But until that day, there is still hope for the sinner. There is still a chance to repent. Jesus knew the concerns and the fears of his people. He knew his people saw the land overflowing with injustice. They saw the land full of demonic evil. He knew they were under the boot of illegitimate rulers. He knew how disappointed they must have been when he finished the parable of the sower. Disappointed because the parable of the sower failed to address one of their most pressing questions. What will the Messiah do about all this evil? I think that is at its heart. The parable of the weeds is Jesus answering that question. I think the parable of the weeds is Jesus reassuring his people, reassuring that he sees their trouble, that he hasn't turned a blind eye, that he is aware of every single injustice in this world. And he tells his people, he's like a sower who notices the weeds growing next to his wheat, that he's a sower who has a plan to deal with each and every single weed that there was coming a day of the harvest where he would personally see to it that the wheat is sorted from the weeds. But the day of the harvest is not yet. The sower knows that uprooting the weeds today would mean uprooting the weed as well. And for the sake of the wheat that has yet to bloom, the sower says, let them both grow together for now. I'll sort it out later. Many in Israel 
just knew that the Messiah was going to come and judge every single weed of evil and corruption that he saw. How could he not? But what many in Israel, what many in the church fail to recognize is that the weeds of evil are far more pervasive than they thought. The evils of Caesar and Herod were easy to see, but many in Israel failed to recognize they possessed weeds of evil in their own hearts. Many in Israel called for a judgment, but failed to recognize how unready they were for the judgment they invoked. Many had no idea just how unready they were for the sower to even begin his harvest. They failed to recognize that the justice they longed to see served to Rome could be served to them as well. And I think that's the message of these two parables together. The parable of the sower explains the unready state of many in Israel. And the parable of the weeds explains that God delays judgment for the sake of those who are still yet unready. Guys, I don't have to tell you that our world is full of injustice. Our world seems to be filled to the brim with weeds. I get it. I see it too. Can I tell you, Jesus sees it as well. Jesus sees every last single weed growing in the world today, and you can rest assured that on the day of the harvest, every last single weed will be accounted for. You can take it to the bank. But from this day until that, the weeds will grow alongside the wheat, not because the sower is indifferent, not because the sower doesn't see them. No, the sower's day of the harvest has yet to come. And for the sake of those who were still yet unready, he waits. Guys, there was a time not that long ago that if the day of the harvest came, I'm with the weeds, not the wheat. I was unready for the harvest, unready to face the judgment of the sower. And for as much as I may have deserved the judgment of God in those days, what I received instead was mercy. What I received instead was a cool drink of water that brought me back from the brink. Today, as we speak somewhere in the world, a person is repenting and turning to Jesus. Somewhere right now, a person is receiving the seed of new life that is found in Christ. They may have spent most of their lives set against Jesus, but today they're called his beloved. Today they are accounted among the wheat. Bearing a world as twisted as this one, bearing rebellious and obstinate people is absolutely exhausting. So it's natural to wonder, how much longer, Lord? When are you going to come back and sort all of this mess out? But remember what the sower said, in the parable of the weeds. Sower delays in the harvest for those who are still yet unready. 